we've had a number of Dean's research seminars, and this one is particularly timely. The research that you're about to see literally has taken up not just the last year, but in the four or five weeks right around the holidays. Our research team, Amanda and Michael are down there, but Tim down there as well, and many others that they'll, they'll describe, have been working nonstop to put together this report, uh, which is an a set of interviews of 152 CEOs that we premiered at Davos last, last week, week before last. Um, this is, in some sense, and you can describe it differently, this is the part of the raw material from which a number of different research projects will be spawned. Some of them might end up in academic journals, some of them might end up in practitioner journals. Who knows, maybe there's even a book in there. So what we're seeing, in some sense, is, is the, the mother load from which all kinds of interesting things are coming. Um, a number of people have talked about CEOs. This is probably the most extensive uh, study of CEOs maybe that's ever been done, certainly one of the most extensive. Um, this is a research project that any one individual probably would have been too afraid to start, um, but if we work as a team, we can do remarkable things. With that, um, to, to Amanda and Michael um, and the rest of your team. Thank you very much, Peter, and uh, thank you very much to all of you uh, to taking the time uh, on this afternoon to, to share this time with us and uh, uh, explore some of these exciting findings. As, as Peter says, it's, it's the mother load, but it's really only the tip of the iceberg. It's the very, very first cut of the data. 152 interviews, 133 hours of interviews with CEOs all around the globe. Um, and it's not just the findings that are very, very exciting. It's also the research process, because this has been conducted in partnership with Hydric and Struggles, um, the leadership consulting firm. So it's a direct corporate academic partnership uh, with a very clear impact agenda as well. As Peter mentioned, the CEO report was launched a week before last at Davos with a panel including uh, Klaus Kleinfeld of Alcoa, um, Arnie Sorensen, the CEO of Marriott International, um, and Eileen Gordon of uh, Ingredion, moderated by uh, Matthew Bishop of, of The Economist, where, where Tim presented the findings for the very first time. So as we've heard, 152 CEOs, they have a combined experience as CEOs of 880 years uh, with a tenure of 6.5 years average, uh, which is slightly higher than the global average. Jointly, they signed responsible for 5.8 million employees and about $1.6 trillion um, of revenue um, collectively. As I said, this is the team behind it. Um, Andrew White, Dean of Executive Education, as the main sponsor for the project. Um, Tim Morris as the principal investigator. Um, Andromachia Thanolosopoulou was the uh, research associate. Uh, Ted Malloch um, from the faculty as well. And uh, if this project has taught us anything, never underestimate the importance and the power of those people who can get you into CEO's diaries. Uh, so Lynn and Emily on our side and Patience Berry on the Hydric and Struggle side have worked tirelessly to secure these interviews in what is essentially a phenomenally short time span. I mean, try and get into 150 CEO's diaries in less than half a year. That's a, a pretty taxing task, but they, they really rose to the challenge. And so I'll just put this out there as a starting point and acknowledge the contributor, but over the next 90 minutes, we're going to go full circle and actually end on what does this mean as a kind of uh, template, possibly, for collaboration. Um, Mark Ventresca is in parallel running another research project in uh, collaboration with Ernst & Young. Uh, Colin Mayer working with Mars. So there, there is an emergent modus operandi in which we collaborate more closely uh, with corporate partners to combine our capacity for academic rigor with their capacity for direct practitioner impact. So hopefully that is something we, we can explore further um, for the future. But to start off with, I'm going to hand over to Amanda who's going to take you straight into the findings to see what it actually was that we found. Thank you, Michael. So first I want to talk to you about our findings around CEOs' new reality where they lead at the intersection. When we started this project, when we were in the, the very early stages doing the research design, we came from a premise that the CEO role was changing and had changed. But we realized that we shouldn't actually take that for granted. So in fact, the first question that we asked in each of these interviews with the CEOs we talked to is, has the role of CEO changed? 
And as you can say, see, more than three quarters of them felt that it had indeed changed. 14% said the role, the specific aspects of the role, the things they do had not changed, but how they do them has changed, so how they perform the role has changed. And less than 9% said the role had not changed. Well, how did the role of CEO change? What we heard a lot about were the different voices they were having to listen to now, that they were having to respond in very rapid ways to a lot of communication from a lot of people that they had not really engaged with before. So as part of the study, we um, sent them out a survey beforehand, before we would arrive for the interview, and we asked them about two specific things. First of all, their stakeholder accountability, which we're gonna talk about now, and then also about global trends that they felt would affect their businesses, which we'll talk about later. So as you can see, owners and shareholders are still at the top of the pile as far as stakeholder accountability goes, but there are a lot more um, stakeholders out there that are getting CEO attention now. So customers and employees, that's pretty natural, but also government, suppliers, activists, trade associations, these people all have the ear of the CEO now and it's making the job more complicated or feel more complicated. So here are some, some direct quotes from the transcripts. One CEO said, society has a certain view on your activities as a company. Everybody has a voice and what's more important, everybody's heard and everybody wants to engage. So that's the perception that they have. And they feel that they really have to be transparent now because information is so readily accessible to the public. So they say, well, how do you manage transparency so you have consistency and at the same time you realize that not everything has to be said, but everything that's important has to be said. And then finally, they feel um, sort of a love-hate relationship with social media. Um, with one saying, how would Winston Churchill be viewed today if every decision he made was tweeted around the world? So one CEO that I spoke to described it this way. So we're sitting in um, his conference room next to his office and I asked him this question and he got a piece of paper and he drew a triangle, much like the one you see here. And he said, when you're in an organization, you work your way up in it and you think that you get more power, more responsibility, and then you get here at the top. You think, okay, fine, I'm on the top of the hill. Now I can lead the organization the way that I want to. I can imprint my own ideas and strategies. But then what happens is there's a new one opening up. He means a new triangle, so he's drawing it on this piece of paper. And that's the board, the shareholders. So you get to the top of the mountain, turns out there's another mountain right up on top of you that you have to balance. But it's more than that today. This, one, this CEO said, governments, journalists, financial analysts, he has to pay attention to all of those people. That's where his job is, in his opinion. But as we talked to more and more CEOs, we realized this is still too simple a model. The stakeholders balanced right, right on the top of the CEO. The stakeholders are not separate from the organization anymore. All these stakeholders are actually permeating the organization. So you may be an activist on Saturday and show up for your work at your corporate job on Monday and you don't, you don't leave your activism completely at the door. So, oh, oops, sorry. So what we heard was once business was impervious, but now business and what's happening outside are actually one. They're one thing now. So the key insights we got from looking at these, the, the way they um, interacted with stakeholders was that this globalized world, the digital connectivity, this proliferation of interested parties have dramatically expanded the group of stakeholders that influence companies and have a point of view that they um, communicate about performance. Now, the CEO's license to operate comes from trust. And without trust, he, can't, he or she can't do what uh, they need to do to lead the company. But this very connectivity, this very scrutiny, is requiring them to reinvent how they communicate, how they lead, how they do strategy. One thing that we kept hearing from people was that they have to be much better at emotional intelligence. One of them even said, in fact, a couple of them said, they felt like the E 
and CEO should stand for emotional, chief emotional officer. But at the same time, they're expected to, to hold the chair, to make the hard decisions w when they have to. So it's a very tough balancing act. One of them um, talked to us and said that he views his, his approach to leading now as collaborative command. We talk about an oxymoron, but there it is. So these past experiences, their existing approaches to strategy communication are no longer reliable guides. They're having to find new ways to build and maintain their corporate culture and to um, align their companies. So they have to lead at this intersection of inside and outside where the traditional boundaries are disappearing and uh, they have to face competing um, contradictory uh, demands often. So moving on to the next question that we wanted to find out about, which was, how do you prepare for uncertainty and change? What do you do? What are the specific things that you do? Well, many of them in talking about change really emphasized speed, 94%, in fact, talked about how the world today is just changing so rapidly that it's hard to keep up. But at least a few were a little skeptical about that. One said there's this mantra at the moment that change is faster than it's ever been and therefore these kinds of issues are going to be greater. I don't really buy that. And so that, yes? Did you actually find that like, the older guys, the people who have more experience, were they <coughs> more skeptical about this, about all of the, the change stuff? Or actually, what we really saw was it depended on your tenure so people who had been in the job before the financial crisis didn't feel there was as much, did, did feel there was a lot of change. People who took the job after the financial crisis, it's pretty much been the same since then. Um, but the, the people who, who led before that in the glory days before the financial crisis definitely saw, saw a change. So, um, so we, ha we felt that this was something worth exploring, that this idea of the speed being so overwhelming was maybe something we should question a little bit. And we even thought maybe part of the reason it seems so fast is actually just because you've got so many voices talking to you now through social media, through all these, this democratization of communication. So we tried to think about and listen in the, in the transcripts for evidence of other dimensions that they could use to have a better handle on change. The first one that we, we discerned was a, an emphasis on scope. There's a change out there. Instead of focusing just on how fast it's coming, think about how big is it? Is it gonna be relatively contained? Is it going to be systemic? So something like the global financial crisis, systemic. But you know, Ebola came, we weren't really sure what was gonna happen, but it has so far been more contained than people thought might be the case. But then the next question you need to ask is, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my business, for my company? So that's the, the significance aspect of S-cubed change. Um, and that's gonna vary, of course, for depending on what kind of company you're in, what kind of change you're looking at. But the important thing here is just to keep all these things in balance and not overemphasize um, this, the speed or pace aspect of change. So when you do that, you get this three-dimensional space that you can imagine a change happening in. And so then we started to hear people saying things like this, we need to be more worried about uncertainties that it can affect us in a systemic way, a structural way, less concerned about micromanaging pace. So when you look at it in this three-dimensional way, then you can start to see these different dimensions as evolutionary versus revolutionary, where speed is concerned, is it contained versus systemic, where scope is concerned. And then you can think about your, the significance to your own organization. Is this just what we call a technical challenge? Is it something that you might have to make an operational change or even a small strategic correction? Or is it something that actually maybe threatens the core values of the organization or the purpose, in which case it's foundational and requires a much um, more aggressive approach to, to handling it. So we heard people say you have to separate the noise and the normal stuff from fundamental shifts. 
and then be able to determine how quickly those shifts are going to manifest or disrupt what you're doing versus those that you actually have more time to handle. And you have to begin to sort out the results. Are they part of a bigger macroeconomic shift or an industry shift? Or are they really more enterprise specific? And that kind of granularity can help you determine where to focus your resources and your attention. So the key insights again, preoccupation with the pace of change makes everything feel urgent and creates a risk that CEOs are gonna focus on things that are actually not that important. By understanding the scope and, and significance of change, they can decide where they're gonna spend their time and how far reaching, how much might it shape the business. So this enables them to prioritize and delegate, but they do have to constantly reevaluate because of course the circumstances are changing. So ripple intelligence builds out of the S-cubed idea of change. So I said we were gonna talk about the trends that we asked them about. We um, asked them to rank the top 10 global trends from the World Economic Forum's Outlook on the Global Agenda 2014. Here's the new version one that Mark Ventresca worked on. Um, and you can see the order in which they ranked them overall. Growing Asian middle class, huge, cyber threats, top of mind right now. And, but some of them said, well, I'm not too concerned about these global trends. It's not a big thing for me. Maybe indirectly, but not directly. That may be hiding his head in the sand a little bit. More commonly, people did see these big trends as potentially impacting their businesses. Not necessarily in a bad way. Sometimes they present opportunities as well. And this one said, geopolitics, those are the things that always have the longest ripples. Not financial crises, not manufacturing game changes. Those aren't big enough. It's about the impact on ideologies. So you can see the regional results. They're actually pretty varied across the regions. People concerned about different things. But interestingly, when you go to the sectoral results, they're pretty similar. So everybody, every sector, felt the growing Asian middle class was important. Um, and they had more similarities across the board. So where, where, where are we with Ripple Intelligence? We've talked about trends. Ripple Intelligence helps us to understand more than just these single trends. We start to think about how these different things that are happening around us may interact, how they may change, how they may um, come in new combinations. So we first started talking about it as intercontextual intelligence because we wanted to talk about that link between contexts. But then we had the visual image of ripples. And so we imagine that you have a pebble, you throw it into a lake, and you get a ripple. But then what happens when you throw more pebbles into the water? Well, they start, the ripples start to inter interact, interrelate. And if you, if you can get back a little bit, you can see quite a few things that may connect in the larger um, environment that you're operating in. But ideally, if you, if you can develop your contextual sort of awareness and take a longer term approach, then you start to see the um, inter intersections of more of these ripples. So one of our CEOs said, the rise of 2.2 billion new middle class consumers, technology going three times faster than management, geopolitics, just one of those forces would make the world volatile. But the combination makes the world much more volatile. So what you really want is this bird's eye view, rather than the sort of where you can sort of see, but you can't quite see too far back. You want to get higher up. And that's where we're saying the longer term perspective is, is critical to achieving that uh, wider view. We you also have to realize that what you do in your organization is gonna create ripples of its own. And so what you do is going to impact the larger environment as well. And so one of the CEOs said, talked about it as the second bounce of the ball. You make a decision and then there are follow on repercussions. And sometimes those issues are gonna be as big as the one that you dealt with to begin with. Now, raise your hand if you think CEOs can predict the future. 
Okay, well, I didn't think so either, but apparently our CNN reporter who um, talked to Michael the other day um, gave Ripple Intelligence a little bit more credit than it probably deserves um, because they still have to worry about the unknown unknowns, and several of, several of them use that, that term when they talk to us. And they do that in a variety of ways, designed to make the organization more agile by diversifying, hedging their bets by making a, a large number of small investments, and also by trying to be financially healthy enough so that if they need to move out of a market, they can do so quickly. So just a quick example, here's another WEF report, Global Risk 2015. Um, and I like this example, but I also don't like it because it's so focused on risk that it's missing out on opportunity. And Ripple Intelligence is not just about avoiding getting hit, it's also about what you can do strategically to capture value. So they looked at these different things. They surveyed uh, several thousand leaders around the world and came up with a ranking of global risks in terms of likelihood and in terms of impact. And then they mapped them like this. So you see that water crises, interstate conflict, unemployment or under, underemployment, failure of climate change adaptation, high impact, high likelihood. So those are the things that, that these leaders feel are really coming down the pike quickly and have the potential to do serious damage. And then though, this is a little hard to see, I think, but then they connect these trends with risks. So they, they trace out climate change. What other effects is it gonna have? Biodiversity loss, um, failure of climate change adapt adaptation, extreme weather events. What about rising income disparity? And they do that for each of them. And you start to see the links between these different trends and the kinds of risks that, that they produce. So the key insights on this topic were that ripple intelligence is the ability to anticipate and to judge how, when, and why contexts <coughs> may interact in ways that fundamentally disrupt your business. And in order to see those, those ripples, you have to find a way to rise above the clutter and then evaluate these emerging trends in terms of their significance for you and for your organization. Are they game changers? Are they just transient? Are they significant, but not gonna affect you? Or are they slow burn? You need to keep an eye on them, but they're not moving very quickly. And new decisions create new ripples. And so you have to think about how everything that you do is interacting with what's already out there in play in the field. I'll turn it over to Michael. Okay. Thank you very much. So the question we then typically get is, well, ripple intelligence is great. One of the journalists called it outright poetic because it captured the dynamism of different trends and they're rippling so nicely about the challenges. Well, how do you actually do that? How do you develop that capability? Uh, and that's where we came up with uh, the power of doubt. And it's evidence to the fact that the different capabilities we're outlining um, are all kind of linked and integrated uh, in that way. But it also shows that some of the management trends or leadership buzzwords we hear and read a lot about are actually becoming a lot more powerful when you start connecting them. So one of the big kind of connecting themes in the report is that we look at leadership capabilities um, and we understand how they are lived. We are asking CEOs for direct examples of how they do that, but also how they are linked and how they are developed. This, <clears throat> this might be outside the scope of what you're doing, but how, how would you map ripple intelligence with sort of other sets of constructs in social science or psychology that try to capture similar intu intuition around unintended consequences or sort of any kind of systems theory has some kind of mm -hmm. sort of thing looking at interrelationships, NK models, for example. And so, and, and also, is this a, like an inherent characteristic of the CEO in some fashion in terms of, or is it more distributed in some, you know, it's collective intelligence rather than individuals? Uh, let, let me start with the last point because it's a, a really interesting one that, that gets raised a lot. And it raises the question about, well, do we still have the heroic CEO, the kind of omniscient leader at the top, or do we have the more human one? And the CEOs are very clear that they are still the ultimate decision makers. There are some decisions that get escalated up and they have to take the decision, um, but they are much more reliant leading at the intersection uh, on team inputs. A lot of them emphasize 
that some of the, the things, what do you wish you had known coming into the job, a lot of them emphasize that uh, I would have set up my leadership, leadership team more quickly so you get more of that collective intelligence. So, so there is a little bit of both in that. And CEOs very clearly link ripple intelligence to butterfly effects, um, complexity, so some of those. So there are definite links into that scenario planning, for example. Um, but the key thing, the, the key distinctiveness between different groups that we were struck how some are very focused on just understanding the context or the context they operate in individually, contextual intelligence, whereas others seem much more attuned to uh, thinking kind of two, three, four degrees of separation away and thinking about how different trends that currently seem quite remote and some, uh, somewhat isolated from them, how they could still come around the corner and hit them in a way. So they were more sensitive to that. Um, so let, how did we stumble upon the power of doubt? We asked CEOs, well, um, what are the toughest decisions you've had to take? Uh, how do you work through those? How do you feel before making high-stakes decisions? And then we asked them, do you ever doubt yourself? Kind of slipped it in somewhat sneakily, and quite a few goes like, excuse me? Um, <laughs> so we were particularly surprised when 71% very clearly said yes. And some of them quite enthusiastically so. A certain level of professional doubt should be the quality of any good leader. And that's one of the, the more diplomatic statements we had. Interestingly, another 10% say, no, I don't doubt myself, but then go about explaining the practices that they use to reduce uncertainty, gain additional confidence and conviction, essentially reducing doubt. So there's something about the terminology of doubt, there's still a certain stigma attached to it, but there seems to be a bit of a, a sea change in terms of how people think about it. And some of them likened it as uh, like the, the nerves of an elite athlete. Like if you can harness them, doubt makes you sharper. It helps you make better decisions. If you lose control of it, then it's fairly disruptive. So based on that, we started mapping the, the landscape of doubt. Clearly, predominantly, it's a, it's a knowledge, it's an information processing, it's a data issue. It's the, it's the difference between knowing and not knowing. But some CEOs are actually quite skeptical of knowing. The idea that you're crystal clear at those moments when you make those decisions, for me anyway, it's an artificial construct. Because if you're that clear, you've probably missed something. Others say, well, I try and anticipate all the different pros and cons, all the options, so I always feel slightly anxious. And it's this contrast of anxiety and getting comfortable making decisions under uncertainty, which pointed us to the fact there is actually quite a strong emotional component to doubt. It's not purely intellectual. There is actually an intellectual and an emotional dimension on it. So we used anxiety as the one uh, extreme of that and fearlessness, call it recklessness if you want to, on the other. Some CEOs very clearly say, I've taken myself out of the second guessing game because it will drive you crazy. So how do you balance that? And then the third one said, well, if you doubt yourself in a constructive, positive way, coming back to the image of the nerves of the athlete, there is a constructive and a disruptive element to those nerves or to doubt. If you don't doubt yourself in a constructive, positive way, you are borderline dangerous for your company. So that fearlessness, which many CEOs, many people, I think, colloquially or, or intuitively say, yes, we want a convinced, uh, a fearless leader, there might actually be a certain risk into that. So we end up with four distinct quadrants on how CEOs can use doubt, experience doubt, address it in different ways. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, I, I actually see doubt and second guessing as two separate things. Mm -hmm. I see what could be two different separate things. Doubt on one hand could be, okay, I have to make a decision. Before I get to that decision point, I will doubt myself. Once I've gotten to that decision point, I can then second guess myself. And, and I was wondering if that was something that... Uh, it's, a, it's a really important point. Uh, and one that we had a lot of dispute and debate around because a number of people somewhat misconstrued our findings in the day in the way that CEOs, these kind of angst riddled wrecks uh, in, in capable of making decisions. But it's exactly that difference. You doubt yourself before you make the decision. You doubt yourself to make a better, more informed decision with more uh, conviction. 
So you then get less of that second guessing afterwards. So there is a distinct before and after. And it is actually, we feel purely anecdotally that those people who have the more negative attitude towards doubt associate it more with this continuous second guessing of your decisions. What a lot of other CEOs say, yet you doubt yourself, you make the decision, and then they say, you close the door on it. You cannot linger and look back continuously, um, but you doubt yourself, make the decision, close the door. This is purely anecdotal too, but Steve Jobs seems like somebody who was very anxious, but also sort of fearless, and so sort of raises questions about, or, and I don't know if you're going to map people onto mm -hmm. this somehow, or, or what the purpose of it is, but, but, but he also, like the emotional intelligence idea, he seems very unintelligent, and a lot of corporate leaders, I don't know, Eisner seems, he was conflict-ridden, constant conflict was sort of mm -hmm. driving thing, so, okay. but I don't know, you can always find anecdotal examples of sort yeah. of the opposite of you, you can, and, and we wouldn't argue that any one person sits in any one particular place all the time, but there will be different decisions that you have different levels of information on that are different uh, level of stakes. So people will find themselves in different places on this map at different times. But the key thing is that you actually understand where you are at the time. So you can think about, people say, well, it's never black and white. There's always shades of gray in terms of suspending yourself between knowing and not knowing. And this anxiety you can use in a positive way because in a way it always almost gives you a bit more clarity. So we filled out this, this anxiety basically CEO say drives their continuous learning. Those people who can suspend themselves closer to the center that don't lose control over their anxiety can use it in a constructive way and say that is really what drives my learning. This inner anxiety this need to know, and they use a very wide variety of things, some very mundane. They say, well, you read, you travel, you talk to lots of different people. Um, my favorite one is one CEO who said, every day I set aside 30 minutes to read news that I have no interest in whatsoever. <laughs> because he says, it's those cognitive blinkers of customized news feeds that constrained our vision and actually constrain the ripple intelligence. So by reading things that currently look unrelated to my business, I actually keep that awareness wide open and you reduce that anxiety. And thereby you create this, where we have turned this kind of zone of uncomfortable comfort. CEOs are very clear that this decision-making is always going to be uncomfortable because as one of them put it, chasing certainty is futile. You will never get 100% certainty in your, in your decision or in your information. Essentially, even if you ever do, the question will have moved on by then. So get comfortable with the discomfort of your decision making. And that's what they're doing there. Now, interestingly, you would think that doubt doesn't play a big role when you speak of, of fearless leaders um, in a way. Oh, actually, just to, so the risk you're pr uh, protecting yourself from then is that risk of paralysis. So we're mapping, how do you harness doubt constructively in that, con in that quarter, quadrant? But what actually would happen if you did lose control of it? So what if anxiety takes over? What if this not knowing becomes your, your paramount sentiment? And then CEOs say that they typically feel paralyzed. They're, they feel unable of making that decision. So by harnessing doubt constructively, you keep yourself closer to the center of that. So, one of the more reflective CEOs then pointed out that actually one of the most important things is having people around you that tell you how wrong you are. That is constructively creating doubt almost when they realize that they have an inclination to be overconfident in their decision making, overestimating the certainty of their environment. They harness what we have termed the diversity of thought. You always get different people bringing you different angles, opening up new challenges and new perspectives on a problem. So whereas the CEOs that find themselves in the bottom left quadrant are seeking uh, awareness from their harnessing of doubt, the ones in the top right are seeking artificial challenge. So when they feel I'm likely to be overconfident in my decision making, they create artificial challenge so that once the decision time comes, they can be reassured that they did not fall prey to any sort of myopia, a narrow view or a short-term view, but they have a more rounded, more granular idea of the, of the issue at hand. Uh, some of them say they have explicit so-called devil's advocate panels. They say, I have this group of people and their only job is to disagree with me. Whatever I say, they always take the opposite stance. And once we're all convinced that we've, we've given this due consideration, 
that's when we move ahead with greater confidence. Some people, though, feel that even though there is relatively good information, there is a high level of knowing, they are still nervous. They are still anxious about making that decision. So as this one says, well, if I'm still nervous at the point of making the decision, I'm either not ready, I'm hasting, hasty, or I'm hoping. So I try to get a point where you rely on more accumulated inputs, wisdom, information. Not necessarily challenge, but validation. Coaching relationships, peer benchmarking, mentoring, um, CEO associations, exchange with other people, uh, sometimes with the family, with the board, with the chairman, depending on what relationships you have uh, with those groups in the organization. They turn to those particularly to seek validation, bounce around some ideas, and thereby get additional comfort. It gets rid of a certain level of angst, almost. When you feel you have good information, you're still insecure about making the, the decision, get validation in that sense. The important thing is here understanding where you are on the on the fearlessness-anxiety divide because you might um, easily go or you simply don't have that culture of challenge and, and um, the senses in your organization. So it might be that you, as a CEO, walk up to a group of staff or senior executives and you're seeking challenge. But if they don't feel it is appropriate to provide that, you will get false validation of your decision. So it is very important for the CEO to be self-aware where they fall in this spectrum and to, to be clear about what they're seeking from the, uh, the groups and the, the staff they leverage. Lastly then, it's the, the perennial risk of CEO hubris in a way, because if you're not careful and you think that you're indestructible, then that's where the dangers lurk. When people are too fearless making decisions when they really don't know very well. So that's the, you said, the CEO hubris, and there, CEOs use relatively traditional risk management um, strategies, the scenario planning, contingency planning, worst case scenarios. That is, I am going to make the decision anyway. I'm fearless enough to do that. I'm not going to um, hang around with more information gathering. I'm making the decision, and then I'm managing the, the outcome of that, or the second bounce of the ball, as we've heard before. <coughs> a quick question on the typology. This might add additional dimensions, but it seems like it's a typology of CEOs, a typology of situations, environments, and a typology of practices. Can you separate out like which one you're most focusing on? It sounds like CEOs, I guess. Is that right? So there's certain types of CEOs? No, I don't. As we said, we think that actually even a single individual might find him or herself in different positions in this matrix depending on the situation or challenge they're facing. Again, on the stakes of the decision, on the level of uncertainty they face or, or feel um, in a way. So, so it's a typology of situations and then some yeah. practices mapped onto how you might... Exactly. Once you understand the, the situation and the, the sentiment of doubt it produces within you, you can then choose corresponding practices to alleviate that and create a positive outcome and create uh, or protect yourself against the risk that, that kind of lurks on the periphery, almost. So key insights, doubt is definitely part of the humanization of the CEO and more and more of them see that as a, as a positive generative state. It's definitely a capability that should be embraced and utilized. Uh, it's not a, a shortcoming to be feared. It is an issue of both knowing and feeling uh, and uh, ignoring the emotional dimension especially. It, it artificially limits the range of the solutions available. Transforming doubt into a positive tool helps finding, as I said, this comfort in discomfort. There is no certainty in the jobs they do, so you better settle into the, dis into the situation and, and accept and embrace it. Uh, what we found particularly interesting, and it comes back to the second guessing uh, challenge we had earlier, that that is the really tricky bit. That is what drives people, quote unquote, crazy, as one of them said, is this discipline of questioning yourself. But using those different strategies that we just outlined, you can actually harness organizational entities, people, and thereby outsource doubt. So you lighten that burden of self-questioning somewhat by making it a dialogue rather than an internal monologue inside yourself. And it seems that many CEOs find that quite helpful. And so understanding the reasons for their discomfort 
allows CEOs to solicit additional information, make them more uh, comfortable and productive decisions. Now, doubt, in a way, is a paradox. You try and suspend yourself between the knowing and not knowing, fearlessness and anxiety, uh, but that's only one of many. And we didn't ask any questions about authenticity, but it was such a, a pervasive buzzword in the, in the interviews that, that CEOs raised it, uh, that, that we engaged it and stumbled upon what we call the, the authenticity adaptability master paradox. And basically authenticity in its simplest form says, well, you should be yourself. That's how CEOs talk about it. Authenticity is the art of being yourself. But then they say, actually, given the challenges we adapt and the, the stretching situations we encounter every day, being authentic is actually quite difficult um, because your authenticity yourself is constantly being stretched and actually yourself is, a, is in a state of constant evolution as well. So how do I actually know that I'm just being myself or am I a different self today than I was yesterday and is that a, a good thing because I evolve and I adapt or is that a bad thing because I'm being pulled out of shape by environmental um, forces. And the interesting thing was that most of that came about when we asked people about what's the, the, the toughest decision you've had to make as a CEO. And two thirds say it's always about people. People decisions are the most painful, they are the toughest ones because that wears a lot of trust is, is gained and uh, trust is lost. So they say, especially with those people decisions, as much as you can intellectualize it, you know it's the right thing for the company, especially laying off someone, especially someone you have, you have close ties with, you have intervened in their life, you have impacted them and their families, and if you're being authentic, that is a hard thing to do. Those are the decisions when they really feel the thing I want to do as a person, as a human, is not what I feel I have to do on behalf of the organization. And that's when they're, when they're starting to feel that stretch between their, their authentic self and the demands for adaptability. So as they say, if you get that one wrong, trust is built over time and it's a split second to have that, that trust is broken very easily. So you have to have a good set of values and a consistent set of behaviors and that what is rebuilding that trust in a way. And interestingly, coming back to the theme of connecting, linking and living those different uh, leadership concepts, very, very close correlation between authenticity and purpose. You must have a very strong senses of a sense of what your purpose is. Be absolutely authentic in everything you, that you do. So we started to probe a little bit deeper into that relationship between authenticity and purpose and started to link authenticity for, or, or unhitched it from being true to yourself, especially when it's somewhat unclear what yourself currently is, to being true to your purpose. And that resonates very, very strongly with CEOs who really focus on that alignment between their personal purpose, why they think they are doing this job, and the organizational purpose. So we visualize purpose as the real core or kernel or their, of their authenticity. The closer you get to that, CEOs feel more comfortable in their job, the more closely that is aligned. So they feel, okay, whatever I have to do on behalf of the organization, I can stand up for myself. I can stand behind that decision. But these pressures to adapt kind of pressure, pressure squish this kind of malleable rubber ball of authenticity in a way. So what you have to do is you have to make sure that your personal motivations are aligned and compatible with the organization and where it's going because over time those things get squished. And the problem is if you start losing focus on what your sense of purpose was at the outset and you start becoming everything to everyone, that is the beginning of the end. So how do CEOs kind of re-energize, find back to that purpose, re-energize their authenticity? And that's the third term that kind of keeps bouncing around there, authenticity, purpose, and resilience. Now, if you really look at resilience into its kind of original meaning of material science, it's the ability of a substance to regain its original shape. So you pull it out of shape, you press it out of shape, it, resume, it returns to its original shape. Whereas most people, or most CEOs, actually talk about resilience as energy. Like it's the ability to pick yourself up again, to keep going in the face of adversity. 
But that is only the end product and the, the intermediate cog, the linking pin almost, that is using their resilience to reassert their personal purpose. That's a bit kind of convoluted. So you reassert your personal purpose by leveraging your, your resilience, returning to your own shape. So you are more self-aware of when is it that a situation stretches me, my values, my personal purpose to an extent that I can no longer bear, that I, don't, I can no longer justify. So you need to figure out for yourself, when am I being stretched so that I can evolve and I can change? When am I being overstretched? And that is the point, and they say you can use exercise, meditation, mindfulness, coaching, self-reflection. Use those kind of practices to regain that resilience and bring yourself back to yourself. Regain your original shape. Make that kind of ball of your authenticity return to its original shape. That is, they say, that is when you get your personal purpose and your organizational purpose back into alignment. And that's what they perceive as energizing. So resilience to energy, that link still, still exists. That is absolutely true the way they talk about it. But most people overlook that it is by using resilience to aligning organizational, realign organizational and purpo uh, personal purpose, that is what then releases the energy. They're very clear. Once I felt that I was at home in an organization and we stood for the same values, that makes it easy to bounce out of bed into the, in the morning and I, and I joyfully go to work. But when you feel those being misaligned, that is when CEOs feel drained and don't feel at home in their organization. Uh, questions? Stefan? And if you want to start off? I just wondered if you got, you asked whether you got any sense of people speaking back to you, mm -hmm. the stuff that is in the managerial education <laughs> tend yeah. to culture. Yeah. Because quite a lot of these responses sound like stuff that they've seen talks on over the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, that, that was our initial perception as well. Uh, so we started out almost what, what we called a, a management height, high peep, heat map. Um, because you get all these buzzwords, authenticity, resilience, purpose. Um, we, did, we never asked about this. Um, but what was interesting for us is that currently, both in the literature and in the lingo of the CEO, they all talk about these concepts in isolation. So they will talk about authenticity, and someone will talk about purpose, and someone else will talk about resilience, and maybe someone will, will connect two of them. Um, but it was this kind of linked, how are these things linked, lived, and developed, where we thought there is actually an additional purchase in there so that, that these concepts don't exist in isolation, but you need, to, uh, you need to link them for full purchase. On the methodological level, the question is, well, were they just talking the talk? Um, and that's obviously the beauty of a, a qualitative interview design, that you sit face-to-face -face and for over 95% of our interviews, we did actually physically sit face-to-face -face with the CEO. So you can instantly probe and say, well, what does that mean? How do you do that on a day-to-day -day basis? And that's when you very quickly figure out if someone has just read some of this and can't really give you an example of how it's done in practice or whether someone can offer a very rich example how just the other day it happened like this. Uh, and that gives us a, a fairly good sense of uh, where different people fall in those camps. Sorry, yeah. Um, of the 152 interviews, mm -hmm. um, were there, uh, was there a split between promoters um, or uh, first generation entrepreneurs and uh, purely professional managers? Mm -hmm. And uh, if so, was there a difference uh, in the authenticity? Authenticity, the resilience, um, because my sense is that, um, I may be, I'm maybe quite wrong, that if it is a first generation or a promoter or a family business, mm -hmm. there should be less of the pressure. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it's a very good point, and, and I, I have to come back to the opening remarks that this is only the tip of the iceberg. So uh, we do have 8% founder CEOs in our sample. Um, so after some initial con conversations, we specifically looked for those to, to explore exactly those questions. So we have public CEOs of publicly owned firms, family businesses, privately owned firms, and founder CEOs. Um, but that is the next step in the analysis. So at the moment, we're looking at the, the global sample as one coherent entity. But it's absolutely right that we need to look into those differences as well. Um, <laughs> and, and there may be some of those. 
Um, but it is true that this one, I, I will say anecdotally that privately held and family owned firms typically report a somewhat simpler stakeholder basis. So where we started out with the, the concept of leading at the intersection, if you have fewer disclosure demands, fewer meet, uh, or less media scrutiny, uh, people typically feel that they live the company more, they, they can be more naturally authentic because simply there are fewer audiences that, that scrutinize their leadership. So anecdotally there is something, but the analysis still has to be done. Could you imagine these personal practices Okay, and um, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I'm, I'm wondering because the authenticity paradox which you've mentioned, that will be felt by people at various levels mm. within the organization. So the, the, the pressures that CEOs are under, well, there might be similar pressures at other levels of the organization yeah. and even at the front line. Mm -hmm. So if you were to say that these practices had some value for other people in the organization, could you create an organization that in its entirety use doubt as a practice in order to be able to meet its challenges? I, I would imagine so. And I mean, the, the title of the, the CEO report is to indicate that these are the people we asked. It's not like this is only applicable for CEOs. Um, so, but obviously <laughs> they experience some of these tensions, pressures, contradictions uh, more acutely than others. Um, and as the, the opening um, quotes also showed, you, you move up the ranks through the organization. There are still certain things only the CEO does. So this is kind of an instructive extreme case in that way. Uh, but I think there's definitely something to be said for more mindful, doubtful, purposeful organizations. And, and again, that's the, uh, the second research initiative that, that was presented at, at Davos, uh, which Mark Ventresca is working on with, with Ernst & Young on uh, purpose-led transformation. So there's definitely a, a more pervasive argument to be made rather than just the CEO or even just the, the C-suite. Like, I'd like to follow, follow up on something Stefan said about you know, managing outcomes for interviews like that, if you're the one being interviewed, and, and sort of managing your social desirability bias. I remember getting interviewed for similar stuff <laughs> myself, and you know, you're sitting there, first of all, you sit down for several hours with the PR people to prepare for that. What are the right passwords? What are the authentic stories that people believe? <laughs> but even if you don't do that, you know, I was sitting there thinking, geez, I have a great job. Technology makes it easier every year. You know, going, being able to go to business school and do executive education makes it easier. I couldn't do that 50 years ago. Um, I do the same job, and it's not getting faster. I do, and this is a fantastic job. I do it for half the pay. Mm -hmm. But boy, I'm not going to tell anybody, no, things are really fast. Okay, more and more complex. It takes a superman. It takes amazingly brilliant people to do this sort of job, which is why I have the job. And let me tell you. Okay. Um, to be perfectly honest, we didn't get a lot of that. Um, so number one, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe a bit. Um, so, so number one, uh, CEOs were assured of their absolute anonymity, so there really wasn't anything to be gained by um, playing up your authenticity or your personal performance because no one would ever know it was you. Um, the stories we got, I think actually the more striking ones are some of struggle, vulnerability. We asked people about the defining moments in their lives that turned them into the leaders they are today. Uh, and some of these vignettes are very rich and very detailed where personally I was sitting there and I thought, you did not have to tell me all of this. So, and, and a lot of the CEOs uh, found the experience quite, quite cathartic in that way. Um, and the, the other thing I will also say is, yes, CEOs say the world is more complex, the more uh, is more fast-paced, more ambiguous, more uncertain, but I would say they don't really complain about it. And, and there is, so there is no, oh, the world is difficult and therefore it takes a hero like me. It's like, the world is more fast-paced, the world is more complex, let's get on with it. And we did have quite a few who said what a privilege it was to have yeah. the position. That yeah. They love the job. Absolutely. Michael, one of the uh, strong things we know about this issue of CEOs is the fact uh, uh, that so many of them are getting shot out of the saddle. Mm -hmm. Uh, at an increasing rate, you know, the, the Blues uh, study, which is an annual study with a very large sample of chief executives, clearly shows that from the 1990s, the survival rate is, is dropping. So uh, it's a very precarious position. And you have you mentioned nothing of this. Uh, I, all of the, the fact that one reason for the 
precarious senses, of course, is that the performance goes wrong, and therefore they become endangered. And of course, they become particularly endangered if they don't have the power base mm -hmm. to protect themselves. Um, and particularly the relationship with the chair, of course, and with the board, as you've already hinted. Have you got anything on this sense of precariousness, which is a reality, I think, of chief executive's life at the moment, and the, how they handle the politics and power at the top of the corporation to try and protect themselves when times do get rough? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think number one, as I, as I hinted at before, all of them say it's really important to get your management team in place um, very quickly. Um, something I, I am still getting to, but as a, a little sneak preview, a lot of them also say that um, managing relationships with board and chairman is actually one of the areas they feel least prepared for going into the job. Uh, so they're very clear that you're not fully formed as a CEO stepping into the role. They say they all on. A lot of them underestimated the amount of on-the-job learning they still had to go to, and board and chairman relationships are kind of top of, top of that agenda. Absolutely. Uh, the second point is um, something we didn't elaborate on in great detail in the report, but it's, it's one of the fascinating themes that are kind of next on the list is the whole um, notion of timing, time, pace, haste, and a lot of them are very, very acutely aware of the short tenures that CEOs have these days and say, well, you, you need to go in first day uh, guns blazing because you only have such a short time to actually make a real impact. So, so they, they are quite aware of that and, and kind of factor that into how they approach the job when they, when they originally get in. Now, another associated time issue is the, if you look at the people who have been chief executives in several companies, one thing to get very skillful about is knowing when to arrive and when to exit. Uh, you know, the, yeah, in order to protect their reputation. And some people are very conscious of that and will handle that in a very deliberate sort of way. Mm -hmm. and it is crucial. After all, this is an impression management game, yep. uh, amongst other things. You know? mm -hmm. I, I think we're, we're going to get that. And I'm conscious of, of time as well. But So just very quickly. Um, so key insights. I mean, clearly, authenticity is top of the agenda, top of mind. Adaptability is top of agenda, as we say, with the, uh, the challenges of the, the speed of change, pace of change, those kinds of things. Um, but the capacity to adapt in an authentic fashion is really critical for maintaining the trust, but also the buy-in and that kind of those relationships with the chairman, the board, but also the rest of the, the internal stakeholders as well. Well-defined and aligned purpose is the touchstone for reducing that doubt, for reasserting that authenticity. So the link between authenticity, purpose, and resilience is really quite, quite critical in this. And it's only the master paradox, one of many. That was another aspect here that really struck us that we did not ask any questions uh, about balance. And, and just to, uh, Mark, to your point as well, we made uh, a big point of the fact that CEOs would never get the interview questions ahead of the interview. So they could sit with their PR people, and sometimes we actually did have lawyers and PR people sit in the interview, but they didn't typically interfere. But we were very clear that uh, we didn't want them to have the answers before exactly to, uh, to avoid scripted answers like that. So one of the, uh, the unscripted answers was that 67% of CEOs raised the challenge of finding balance as a salient concern. We never asked about that, but 67% of them somehow struggled with balance. What they are struggling to balance, though, is very, very varied. It's at the organizational level, short-term, long-term, uh, exploitation, exploration, the ambidexterity, paradox, um, so all of the, and profit versus positive social impact, a whole plethora of paradoxes they had to, to manage. Uh, but they are, again, we're looking at them in a more positive fashion, trying to get away from these kind of either-or trade-offs to, to both-and synergies. And the second aspect that we found quite interesting is that that was somewhat to be expected. Hopefully, that there are some of these trade-offs going on. But then there are also these very personal paradoxes they have to manage. Authenticity and adaptability being one of them, personal decision-making biases and preferences, and again, in the spirit of, of linking some of these concepts, we started to link the, per the personal and the organizational paradoxes in that way. Because they say, what today is critical is the ability to make choices, balancing stakeholders, balancing the long-term and the short-term, balancing priorities, leading at the intersection. 
So many of them feel like spinning plates. Um, that's how we visualize it. And uh, the, the bottom disk, those are basically, is a selection of the personal paradoxes CEOs face. There's haste versus hesitation, um, the authenticity versus adaptability we've just seen, pessimism, optimism. Optimism is a really, really big theme about CEOs. They just feel they, they have to be the chief optimist in the, um, in the organization. But then on each decision they make, they also have to trade off these organizational priorities, short-term, long-term, profit, social impact, innovation, growth, and those things. So the first impact or insight that we thought was really interesting is that it's not about finding the midpoint. It's finding the hub where these different paradox spokes intersect and where they can find balance. So we're not prescribing in any way that you always have to have exactly a 50-50 balance between profit and social impact, but on different decisions, these balances may vary slightly. And it's the sum of all decisions, the sum of all trade-offs and paradoxes you manage that then kind of defines organizational purpose. What is your priority? Are you all out just to make profit? Or how do you weigh the priorities of making profit and a positive social impact, for example? And as we, we said before in the management of the, the authenticity master paradox, you then have to make sure that that organizational purpose is aligned with your personal purpose. And the key for that is, like the acrobats spinning those plates, the key thing is that you find personal balance for yourself. You must have a, a safe footing um, in that way. And there are four paradoxes in particular that help with this, side of, uh, this kind of uh, alignment. And uh, they are doubt, which is essentially one of these balancing points between different, dif uh, different paradoxes. Um, realism, which is the, the midpoint, the balance point between pessimism and optimism. They're very clear. You have to be an optimist. But if you're just kind of all, all out, kind of overly optimistic about things, you need to find the balance being a bit of a pessimist, being a bit of an optimist. So they see realism actually as the midpoint of managing a paradox. The conviction that comes out of the interplay of humility and hubris and the patience, which is the interplay of haste and hesitation. And importantly, the argument is that the organizational purpose, that's pretty much the what of your decision. Where are you landing on these different scales? What is the decision? Managing your personal paradoxes, to what extent you allow for doubt, to what extent you make realistic assumptions, to what extent you communicate your decisions with conviction, and to what extent you time them well by exercising patience, that determines the how of the decision-making process. And the better managed the, pro the paradoxes in the decision-making process, the more conviction, or with the more conviction you can communicate those uh, decisions, the more likely you are to create alignment behind the what of the decision. So there is a clear interplay between the personal paradoxes and therefore how you make the decisions, and the organizational decision uh, paradoxes, the what of your decisions. And that was something that a lot of the CEOs didn't seem to have uh, connected quite in that kind of way. So the, the key insights is that you must balance both organizational and personal paradoxes, which is pretty much a given of the role, um, because how you manage the personal paradoxes influences the co organization's confidence in your decisions. Losing sight of any one stakeholder demand, as in moving all the way to the edge of one of these organizational purpose disks, that's basically a recipe for corporate scandal. If you have multiple stakeholders who feel they have a, a valid point um, in, in the, the decision making and you completely ignore one of them, that's when corporate scandal typically uh, starts to erupt. Pace and timing of decisions, as we alluded to earlier, is really critical. And the interesting thing is that both haste and hesitation can be equally damaging. You don't want to rush into things. One of them very evocatively put it, if you lead from the front and you get too far ahead of the organization, they mistake you for the enemy. Um, so you want to, so they say, even if I've made up my mind myself, 
I need to allow the organization to catch up with me so we can then own the decision together and start executing together. So patience is a really important point there. And with that, we're moving into the last one, which comes back to, to Andrew's point uh, about the growth and the need for continuous learning and renewal. As we said, a lot of the CEOs surprised us by saying that in retrospect, they really weren't fully formed as a CEO stepping into the role. Um, I think most CEOs aren't necessarily as carefully crafted when they arrive in the role as they might like to make out. I think there's probably more learning on the job that goes on than people get. Key amongst that is being in the public eye, the media scrutiny, the public scrutiny CEOs are suddenly under, the relationships with the chairman and the board are the other key aspect where, where CEOs feel underprepared and therefore stepping into the role, the key is that you need to, what one of them called it, have, have this enormous mindset of openness and learning. You, however ingenious you think you are, you're still not a genius and there are always other clever people around. So we started to map the evolution of CEOs as innovation S-curves, really. So in their formative years, they have this one big, big curve and then they step into the role and really the key is that they kick off the secondary big S-curve. Now critical to that is that each of these S-curves is still driven by small developments, incidents, instances that CEOs leverage to ignite yet another one of these developmental S-curves, stretch themselves, develop new capabilities. And interestingly, as we learned from our conversation around these defining moments, a lot of them actually say, look, you learn a lot more from your failures than you learn from your successes. So it's typically often in these moments of crisis that CEOs start to, to reinvent themselves. The point though, when they think about reinventing themselves in the job is quite often that they sound like they are just jettisoning everything. Literally speaking of reinventing themselves from a, from a blank sheet of paper almost. Um, whereas a bit of reflection and mindfulness would probably be helpful in the way of reminding them uh, of the strength and capabilities that brought them into the role in the first place. So um, the advice in a way is not to, to just throw out the, the baby with the bathwater, um, but be more mindful and reflective um, of the great things you brought to the job in the first place. And, and just as you say, what we actually tried to, to illustrate is that um, in that sense, you go out on a high or you hand over to a CEO with a, with a company in good nick or you move on to the, to the chairman state. Just as you said, you don't want to end up on the declining arm of that top level S curve and, and be fired as a CEO. You want to make sure you keep evolving to that level and, and go out on a high exactly as you suggested. Um, so key insights, the role is structurally unique. So many of the CEOs told us, well, I was second in line, I thought I was ready. But once you're in the seat, you discover so many things that the CEO did that no one else in the organization does. So any preparation is by definition incomplete. It's the sudden visibility and scrutiny, communication, board relationships, as we said. Those are the things that really take CEOs by surprise somewhat, some more, some less. Um, and so you need to think of the CEO career as these interlocking periods of personal growth. You're not done when you get to the CEO seat. It's just the start of that second phase of the journey. Typically, it's in those moments of crisis that CEOs reinvent themselves and uh, the point is that for the CEO, it's not just, again, developing themselves, but nurturing environments that allow them and help them to keep growing and, and keep developing themselves. 